Hi everybody, I am uh, Andrea Bertaglio. I am an Italian, uh, I'm an Italian journalist, an environmental journalist, and uh, I'm uh, writing about uh, environment and sustainability since uh, 18 years now. And uh, writing about environment took me pretty often to deal with agriculture and zootechnics and uh, to get in touch with the livestock sector so much that now I'm uh, coordinating a project communication project called uh, the European Livestock Voice, based in Brussels. And, uh, and they collected so many informations about uh, meat production, consumption and the livestock sector that uh, I wrote a book, uh, which is uh, called uh, titled In Defense of Meat. And that was uh, very strange because it's probably the first time or probably doesn't happen often that uh, Somebody dealing with environment is uh, taking a stand in defense of meat and not uh, writing or speaking against meat. Okay, well, it's good. What it's, a, good it's good, Matt, to get another professional on to do. What the a intro. fabulous an intro! And and Andrea was only uh, just told seconds ago that he had to do the intro, and what a professional job he did. And uh, I'm just thinking, Matt, it's we 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 do have the odd overseas guests. Yes, we do. We had uh, a Spaniard on. Yes. Um, when was that? I remember when that was. It was the day after Scotland beat Spain in the in, soccer in the, in the World Cup and in, in the soccer oh, yeah, EU qualifiers. Europe, yep, you're right. Uh, I don't think Scotland's beat Italy at anything ever. So anyway, it's good to get you on. We we saw your book uh, the other day on being doing the rounds on Twitter, and it sort of sparked my attention. So I ordered a copy. Uh, so it's not arrived yet. So probably a waste of time actually buying it because you're probably going to spoil most of what's in the book on this podcast. Um, but we're going to start off, Andrea, by a sixth sense. This is our psychological test of all of our guests that come on. We're going to, we're going to give you a word. You're going to tell us the first thing that comes to mind, either a short sentence or just or one a word or a, fra- or a very short phrase. Yeah. Yeah. We, we might even give, I might even give a couple of, might be just more than a word, it might be a short phrase that I give potentially. Yeah, but we'll just see how we go. Okay. Do you want me to go first, Andrew, or you want to go first? You go, you go first. And they may be, just to give you, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before, they may not be completely relevant to your expertise, uh, but just go with it. Yep, just go with it. I'll start first. How about we start with fake meat? Broad. You're Italian, so I've, normally we'd go with black pudding. Yeah. But as you're Italian, I wanted to use Scotland's experiment with Italian food. Deep fried pizza. Oh, shocking. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What about um, Italy's Italy in the World Cup last year? No comment. <laughs> I would have went shocking as well. <laughs> yeah, that's yes, what I thought as well. Kind of, yes. Okay, my one is emissions from livestock destroying the world. BS. <laughs> what about um, agriculture and environmentalism? Um, complicated uh, misunderstanding uh, going on. At six? No, you'll go one more. Crocs footwear. <laughs> oh, um, 
plastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm we will not talk sure about pla- that with my psych- with our <laughs> yeah. psychologist. Yes, yeah, I'm not sure if, if if plastic is a good answer or a bad answer. And and because off off <laughs> the uh, off the recording, Andrea, you told us you're originally from Milan, from Milano, yeah. um, which is a fashion capital of the world. So before we go any further, I want to clarify, a Crocs footwear, are they a good fashion item or a bad fashion item? Well, when it's not uh, leather, if you ask me, it's, it's a bad one. So, <laughs> so the leather Crocs are okay, but no, not plastic ones. I, I will yeah. actually, I'll continue on the theme of fashion before we move mm-hmm. on. Yeah. I'd, like, I'd like to point out our new polo shirts. Yes. From the Merino Very Polo fancy. Company. Yeah, Merino, Merino Wool. 100% merino wool. Uh, I'm, not sure I'm not sure if they're 100%. They're, yeah. 95% merino wool. Yeah. They're, uh, they're a high proportion of merino wool. I'd like to say thank you to our sponsors, the Merino Polo mm-hmm. Company. Yep. yep by exactly. Stephen, Stephen Noah. Yeah. Who is, uh, Can I order one? or? Uh... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wait till there's, there's actually a, a new version coming out very shortly. It'll be an AgWatchers edition. So um, yep. you'll be, yeah, be able to get one of uh, the, the podcast you've been on. So anyway, let's get into the, the the real important stuff. I want there's two main things I wanted to sort of talk to. You. I want to talk about your book. Yep. And then I also wanted to talk about the European Voice because that confused me a bit. So let's start. Maybe with start book. start the book. Yeah, start, start the book. And uh, why? Why have you written it? Because uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I mean, I, I got in touch with this uh, with the livestock sector because. Uh, um, I was uh, always a freelance journalist. Writing about environment uh, didn't give me the chance to sit inside of, uh, of a newspaper in Italy in the past years. And uh, at a certain point, uh, a group of uh, organizations asked me to help them first to review uh, a scientific report about meat production in Italy and then to uh, help them to run a project, a communication project which is called in Italy, still there, the Sustainable Meat Project, to uh, tell the public to counterbalance the misinformation about this sector, uh, particularly when it comes to environmental and social uh, sustainability. I thought it was, uh, you know, greenwashing. I had my prejudice too. But then when I had the chance to deepen the subject and what they were doing, I realized that there were really many things going on about uh, sustainability in the livestock sector and uh, and uh, and I started to to learn many things and that took me to a, both a professional and a personal path which made me change uh, many point of views of views that I was uh, developing in the previous years and uh, uh, at a certain point I couldn't write anymore as a journalist about these topics because you're supposed to be neutral and uh, I thought, okay, I need any way to uh, to give this information. So I thought to collect them, to gather them in a in, in a small book, in which I'm uh, explaining my 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 personal path because I had my you know my followers, my public I created in the previous years asking me why uh, I was doing that, I was taking such a such a position. And uh, so I was explaining why I get there and, uh, and in the meantime, uh, giving information about uh, water uh, consumption, emissions. Uh, you know, I was trying to debunk uh, the, the, the main uh, myths about, uh, about meat production. The misinformation that sometimes is out there. So, and, and, and can, how, we how, go, 
Can we go? I just want to go just back one step before you mentioned. Obviously, you're a journalist primarily, and then an environmental journalist specifically. Did did one come before the other, or have you always been interested in that field? I've always been interested in this field uh, already as a, as a as a child, as a as a, as a boy, uh, and I always thought. Uh, so I'm not an agronomist. I'm not a farmer. I don't have a background uh, like you guys, by the way. And uh, I'm, uh, I have a degree in sociology, actually. So uh, I always thought that uh, the environmental issues were uh, very much connected to the social trends. And uh, when, because when I when I decided what to do with my life, so in my twenties, more or less, I thought uh, that I, that as I was always, I always liked writing. So I wanted to be a journalist already when I was a kid. I thought to write about these uh, topics and these connections. So um, let's say in a few words uh, about uh, writing about environment from a social or sociological perspective. So yes, it was always uh, one of my main interests for sure. In that environmental kind of pathway, had you had you um, been vegetarian or, or vegan in any path through that? Or you always been a meat eater as well as an environmentalist? I've always been a meat eater. I tried twice to be vegetarian with uh, no success at all. Uh, I've always been a really a big meat eater. My mother can confirm that. Uh, besides, I'm from, as you said, I'm from Milan. So Lombardy is a very meat-oriented uh, uh, region. I'm, it's not on the seaside. It's not in southern Italy. So meat is very important. Uh, daily meats, uh, so uh, salami and so on. So it was always present in my life. I always loved it. And uh, even being uh, an environmentalist, let's say in the past, so even in the times in which I was honestly more an activist than, than mm. a journalist, and I was uh, advocating very much for uh, the, the environmental protection, and I was in touch with all the major NGOs, environmental NGOs, I never... I was never uh, convinced of the of the fact that turning ve vegan in particular was good also for the environment. And I had quite some uh, uh, public uh, contrast with vegans also at that time. So it makes sense I'm here now like that because uh, I'm, I've been always kind of coherent in my in my approach with these topics, I have to say. So, but I've never been vegan. I tried twice to be vegetarian, but sure. after. I've 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 tried vegan vegetarian. No, I, I veg, I've had a vegetarian. What? I had a vegetarian diet. What for? How long? One day. One meal. <laughs> I went. I went. No, no, no. In fact, that's a lie. There's one day. Oh no! When you when you got you uh, one time you had a very bad hamburger and you went off meat for about I, what, I, a few I, months. Nine months. Twelve months. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, no, so I had. But points. you were still having cheese and other and things, so you, yeah. chicken, fish, yeah. Lamb. yeah, just stop. Yeah, no, so you just stopped pork. It just beef. Just, I could, I just stopped eating beef for a while. It was in my head that I just could not. No, but I could also eat. Remember, I could eat beef tataki. Yeah. Or I could eat beef. What's it called? Tate, tate. Beef tartare. Yeah. I just couldn't eat cooked beef. It was just carpaccio. Beef carpaccio. It was, it was just nice. in. My, it was just in my head because remember that nice beef carpaccio. Yeah, beautiful. In that restaurant. Anyway, gone on a complete tangent there. You so can ask another question, will you? About... I, I was. Misinformation. It's a really interesting topic because we always get accused of it all the time. Well, spreading um, it? or Mainly mainly 
talk because we talk nonsense a lot of the time. But when we when we look at misinformation, yeah, and I don't mean to be offensive because obviously I'm Scottish. I'm no longer part of Europe after Brexit. Uh, but most of that misinformation seems to come out of Europe and then expands around the world. Well, yes. Um, let's say that Europe is a very peculiar place when it comes to this topic. So, uh, but again, maybe it's my background, but I see that as a very uh, social uh, issue more than uh, it's the European society is much more keen than uh, than uh, the rest of the world, and I mean all the rest of the world of. Uh, Give, get, get, taking for granted that uh, uh, giving up meat is good for climate or for the environment. If you ask me why, uh, I think uh, Europe, uh, particularly Western Europe, let's say, uh, is a very urban society. So first of all, we are in a bubble of wealth uh, since quite some decades. Now, after the Second World War, we, uh, we never had big problems with uh, with wealth, uh, you know, with the real problems, let's say, you know, wars. So we are uh, already, we already had uh, a few generations growing up in a, in, in a, in a bubble, actually. And, uh, and considering that most of the European uh, society, as I was saying, is completely detached, not only from nature, but also from agriculture, uh, created this situation. So uh, uh, an urban, wealthy uh, majority uh, misunderstanding or not knowing uh, the, the agricultural sector and, and, and nature itself. The problem is that uh, um, also decision makers in Brussels or in some European capitals are, are like that and are uh, in good faith often uh, making big damages. So if you ask me, that's the reason. But surely Europe is something apart. I've been in the U.S., couple of times already this year and it's uh, it's already different different uh, I, I mean the, the the perception and the and the approach of uh, of the of the public and the of, of society in general towards this uh, this matter and they were asking me why plant-based products are so successful in Europe so those are the two can, what can, I was talking can, about can, the, can I ask you that are plant-based foods successful in Europe are they selling because they don't yes. seem to be selling that well here not really. Yeah, no. In the, in the in Australia, in the US, apparently not at all. In Europe, more. So, for instance, uh, uh, Burger King, McDonald's already McDonald's already gave up uh, the plant-based alternative in the US. In in Europe, is still there, as far as I know. So yes, there are more uh, uh, more people consuming these uh, hyper-processed uh, products in Europe. But uh, as far as I know, according to some food analysts, uh, they're not going that well here either so well, it's, it's, uh, it is like anecdotally matt i sent you a picture maybe a month or so ago hmm. i'd been to that you said you sent me lots of pictures i sent you lots of pictures <laughs> it, it was the one when i had clothes on okay the right. uh it, remember i sent you a picture of the two burgers yes yeah i've been to that burger place in canberra broad yep. burgers uh yep. this beautiful burger two nice big pieces of beef and the other one was a friend who'd had plant-based plant product it was such a sad looking thing <laughs> it was just it looked like it deserved to cry like it, it deserved to be put out of its misery it was like 
and even you just look at it and it's, I tried a taste of it and it's like it didn't taste bad but, no no at the beginning no that's uh, they they, but, they were able to reproduce this uh, smoky flavor but then you get nosy I tasted them also not only in the burger I mean the in the sandwich I bought uh, a full packet of patties salty and uh, yeah they're horrible because there are plenty of uh, you know preservatives uh, and, and stuff which coconut oil mm. so it was really at the end now objectively pretty disgusting because there are something like 21 ingredients it's uh, against beef or against chicken or whatever so it's uh, it is actually making you feel sick at the end now so, so, so you wrote the book you released it in Italian initially yeah so just so you know and- Matt does actually speak Italian. Porcusimo, porcusimo. So he, he might buy a copy in its native tongue. I might, I might. I'll, I'll only be able, to, I'll only be able to understand the swear words, of course. <laughs> so, so you wrote the book, yeah. And what's the reception been to the book? Because you released it in March. Uh, yes. Yeah, so first of all, it was not that easy to publish it because uh, it was uh, three, four years ago now in Italian, the first edition. Now in English, is a bit updated and it just came out. So it was a moment in which this uh, vegan uh, any, uh, propaganda was very, was a hype at the moment. So I, 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 it was not easy to find a publisher willing to invest in that. First of all, just be, what, were they, were they, would you think they were fearing some kind of a backlash from the activists? Also, but simply because it was not selling, they were telling oh. me. So it was a moment in which all the vegan recipes or messages were selling. So they were focusing on that. Um, and then once it came out, thanks to a small, uh, brave publisher from Turin, actually, Lindau, um, the reception was, uh, was of, uh, was a surprise. A surprise from most of the people as far as I could see. So this book took me to the main TV programs, late shows. It was an intense experience for me because, you know, finding yourself suddenly on a prime time and on TV is not, uh, I mean, not, not something you do every day if you're not already famous or radio. So it was shocking, as I was saying, that uh, somebody uh, coming from the environmentalist world was uh, taking such a stand in defense of me. So it was, uh, it, many people were curious. Many were angry. I lost uh, quite some oh, followers. That was, my next, that, was my next, that was my next question. Yes. Did you, did, given you from that background, did you lose people that were previously friends or colleagues in that space? I did, I did. I lost uh, followers. I lost friends. I have a few people who stopped uh, talking to me that somebody removed me from the friends on Facebook, on LinkedIn, you know, it was, it was, it was a good, a good way to filter but, uh, but, but proper friendship. But, but, but don't worry about it. Cause you've got Matt and I on your LinkedIn yeah, now, yeah. As, as new friends <laughs> and Twitter. So you, you, what, what is taken with one hand is given with the other. So in terms of like going, going back to that sort of environmentalism and, and veganism, I sort of, I got a view and I'd be interested to hear your point of it, is that, okay, emissions do come from animals. There's no denying that. Mm-hmm. But let's say, for instance, I'm just going to use a hypothetical number. You have one ton of carbon from X number of cattle, but it produces food. But it seems to be demonized, the carbon that comes from... Well, the methane, you mean? Well, the methane. Yeah. Well, sorry, CO2 equivalent. Matt is a technical <laughs> term. Um, 
so the CO2 equivalent comes from the cattle and it's demonized, but it's producing a food product that feeds people. And in many cases, that food product is coming from an area like Scotland's a good example, or probably parts of Italy where you mm. can't grow crops in the hills. So you can put sheep or goats or cattle on it. However, we should be focusing, in my view, on pieces of crap, like mm. a piece of junk that's made in a factory in China using slave labor, or sorry, child labor, or, but also produces carbon. Why, why are we focused on, why is the value of carbon that is made to produce cattle not valued more than little pieces of crap, basically? You know, like you mean, like consumer, some kind of yeah, fast like, like consumer fast good. consumer good, like a, like a like a mobile phone, like a mobile yeah. phone. How much carbon goes in to produce a mobile phone? I bet it's lots. You know, a Tesla, but yes. that's not providing any nutritional value to me, and it's not keeping, you know, filling me up with iron or whatnot. Um, well, it's uh, quite a question. So first of all, I think uh, for most of people, are, is is more uh, it's easier to give up a burger than giving up a smartphone, and uh, and you get the illusion that uh, you can have a, a simple solution for a for a complex issue, um, and uh, and there are the so there are the, there is the ethics involved here. So you think a better person because you don't kill an animal and all this crap. Sorry for my French. So um, you, you're there is a multi-billion marketing machine making you feel a better person if you give up meat. That you save animals, you save the climate. It's better for your health. It's all what is working nowadays on the media. So it's all there, ready, pre-packed. You go for it and you save the world and yourself. So that's why it's working. Besides, uh, I repeat, mm. a multi-billion marketing uh, machine and. Uh, the, uh, the other thing that you said an important thing, the carbon equivalent uh, impact, that's, the, that's another big problem. So there are two problems you already mentioned. The fact that they consider methane, speaking of cattle, uh, in carbon equivalent, that's something deeply wrong because methane is impacting something like 28 times more, uh, is, is, a, is having a more uh, greenhouse effect than, mm -hmm. than CO2, but after 10, 12 years is, uh, is disappearing. Is, uh, is becoming carbon again and back to the plants which animals are eating. So it's a... It's a cycle. It's a cycle. But devil's advocate here, that gets recycled in 10 years, that methane, but, yeah. it's, all, but it's also getting replaced every year as well. But, um, but it's, 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 not, but it's but, not increasing necessarily unless, if the cattle unless numbers the, aren't increasing, the, right? The, unless exactly. The, unless the flock increases exactly. or chickens. Yeah. So if the cattle is staying like the same amount, it's a cycle, while the CO2 is staying a thousand years in the atmosphere and, the, and from fossil fuels is taken from underground and pumped into the atmosphere. So it's a very different thing. And another uh, thing you have said, the nutritional value, the fact that it's food. Hmm. So... I'm glad to see that many scientists uh, are starting to take in consideration the so-called NLCA, so the life cycle of a product of meat, but considering also the nutritional properties. So you cannot compare salad and meat because, of course, meat is, impa is impacting more. Because meat but tastes... it's not comparable the nutritional value. So, you, you definitely uh, can't compare the two because meat tastes so much better. Not at all. You were mentioning iron. Yeah. I spoiled you one thing I wrote in the book. 
there are people convinced to to get the same amount of iron eating spinach instead uh-huh. of uh, red meat. Yeah, to get the same amount of iron. <laughs> yes, I mean to get the same amount of of iron of a steak of beef, you need 25 kilos of of spinach. Well, have fun with that. So, <laughs> particularly <laughs> after freedom. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned as well, like that. There's this. It seems like almost, you know, there's a there's a bit of it. The agenda behind this description of of say cattle or, or agriculture more broadly of being environmentally damaging. It's and and particularly from an activist point of view, I, I get the feeling that it's the activists or some of the extreme activists that are say vegan. They actually don't want anyone having animal products, meat products, leather, all those types of things. And part of the way to try and sell that idea, because it's an unpopular idea, let's be honest, right? In the majority of people, we like to eat that kind of food. We like to, you know, leather is a useful item. Uh, there's lots of animal products that are utilised that are useful. Mer- merino wool. Yeah, merino wool, correct. From, from so, the Merino Polar Company. But, you know, the vegan, the vegan activists are wanting a change of our lifestyle, but they're, they're almost hijacking the environmental argument because they think that that will give them extra... Uh, extra kind of impetus to their argument. They think they'll be able to convert more people into that type of lifestyle if they think that it's a better for the environment. So they're not, you know, they're kind of like not really telling the whole truth that that, that kind of a, you know, a, a, a fake meat uh, alternative is better for the environment. No, it's actually not, right? Um, you know, some of the practices they would do, they're trying to say they're better for the environment to try and get you to change your behaviour, but it's not actually the case. Is that what you're saying as well, Andrea? Absolutely. I also say that uh, if you really um, care of the environment, you cannot be vegan. Um, I know it sounds crazy these times, but uh, they are completely far from what is uh, from what nature is. So how nature works, how this planet uh, is working, they have a completely uh, human and I, I, I repeat urban point of view which is far away from everything. I mean, it's enough to watch a, docu- a documentary and you see how things work. I mean, there are some of these people who want to veganize uh, animals, predators. So they really uh, detach from nature. They have their own agenda, which is crossing with another agenda. So the ideological one is crossing the path with the economical one, the big interest behind. Um, and, and these people think... Uh, of an animal as it is a, a human being. That's the problem. Uh, they sentient, don't, sentient instead of a documentary, being. they watch Disney and they think that the world of nature and the world nature is working like that. And it's not like that. So they, they humanize, they anthropomorphize. I can't pronounce it. Yeah, that's a word in English for me. It's really challenging. But anyway, they, that's sc- the problem. Scottish for me as well. So, <laughs> so they, they, they treat animals like humans and it's a big misunderstanding. Also, in terms of uh, animal welfare, it's not necessarily better for an animal to be treated like a human. But not only livestock uh, farming, uh, also pets. Are you sure that treating a dog like your your son is good for him or for her? I mean, it's, um, well, and, they, uh, they really like dogs food. dogs nowadays are getting prescribed Prozac <laughs> <laughs> because. Jesus. And uh, like uh, the one thing I would say about yeah, you know why that is the case though, Andrew. They're so nervous because their owner keeps giving them non-meat uh, food. Right? Yeah, see, <laughs> see, yeah they, I, do, they do. They do. Vegan food, vegan animal food. Yeah. I still think yeah. one of, one of the things that the meat industries need to do to get environmental credentials, and I said this 
on nearly every podcast, Matt. Mm-hmm. It's snout to tail. We need to be in every bit of the animal. Because I, I cooked last week. You saw the, the pictures I sent you. Mm-hmm. Some beautiful stuffed lamb hearts and in an in a Italian sauce. And it was beautiful. Cost me $6. So what's that? Three euros for a kilo of meat. Oh. And that would probably go in the bin, wouldn't it? Like, if people aren't using it, it's not good for the environment. Are you saying like yeah, to try and to, to if you if you slaughter an animal, you should be using should the be using entire the everything, entire everything yeah. from it. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a agree. much more traditional a much more traditional approach as well. But something you should, you should, you should, be, you should be respecting the animal is my view. Mm, absolutely, so, absolutely. Um, something interesting you said there, and I, I wouldn't mind you elaborating a bit further because you made the point and and the phrase you said too that that I'm probably paraphrasing a little bit here, but a vegan lifestyle is inconsistent with an environmental lifestyle, you know, is what you're basically saying. You can't be vegan and be an environmentalist in your view, right? Could, can you yeah. give us, could, like, can you kind of give us a bit more insight into that, clarify that exactly why? Without, without, you, without spoiling the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, i just give you an example. I was mentioning the fact that I had a, a big crash uh, uh, with a vegan person uh, uh, something like 15 years ago in public, uh, he was calling himself uh, uh, an environmentalist, but he was uh, uh, saying that uh, it was better to wear uh, a pile jumper than a wool one. And I was saying, are you joking or what? I mean, it's uh, I, I, I was saying it's better the wool, maybe even locally produced. You even didn't kill the animal to, to get it. And you're telling me that not to exploit the poor uh, sheep in that case, you prefer a uh, uh, oil uh, originated yeah, polyester uh, type synthetic, mm. and you call that uh, environment, uh, environmentalism? What are you talking about? Or, or the fact uh, another big, uh, uh, big uh, confrontation, big clash with a with a famous journalist uh, uh, I had on Twitter that she's living uh, between Milan and Paris and going here and going there. And then constantly speaking about climate and constantly advocating for vegetarian uh, menus, and, and I couldn't resist. One day, I had uh, two days of of uh, of, uh, of fights on on Twitter with her followers, by the way, uh, saying, "So you choose you're you're constantly flying around, much more than myself, but you choose the veg menu on the on the plane, so you you're fine, you save the climate." And I couldn't resist. I told that I, I was writing that, and they had a backlash of her followers. But again, it's an example to say you are taking one flight per week, and you choose the vegetarian menu to save the climate. Hey, so these are these are extremes, just to to. to uh, but it's it's an example, a couple like, of examples. Like you made a good point there about the the, the airlines, because I was just thinking about how cheap it is to fly in Europe versus Australia, where it's really expensive. Mainly because we have zero competition, but mm. you got that sort of. I sort of see a lot of people who are ex- talking about this vegan lifestyle and save the environment, eating vegan food. Vegan food is expensive compared to non-vegan food, largely. Do you think it's also a class system as well, to an extent? Do you think people in a lower socioeconomic groups really get really care about vegan diets? According to my personal experience, they don't care and they cannot care. Can't afford uh, to. 
No, so it's and they even don't see the point. They have serious problems to deal with mostly. So, with all the respect, of course, also climate is a serious problem. But when you when you need to find a it way gets... to get the end of the month, you don't have time and means to 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 uh, to, to to speak about philosophy with your full stomach. So it's uh, it's surely a class thing. It's it's a it's a way being vegan to to feel superior. Is a new way of colon, colon is a new uh, colonialism from my point of view. When I have to speak of with people who want to veganize Africa, my God! So mm. it's a it's it's a very. Uh, I've got I've got I've got I've got a new catchphrase for you to use. Mm. Yes. It's culinary colonism. Culinary yeah. colonism. I like to I feel uh, guilty with because uh, if I see Italian food uh, everywhere, I it's, maybe I should not speak about that. I feel uh, <laughs> it's the only way. It's the only way we colonize the well, world. Probably well, so. the, the good. The good thing about that is when when you take like a food to another country, it can be. Experience. If you say if you say improved and you talk about deep fried pizza again, I think I think Andrea's going to hang up. Hang there's, up. There's, there's two. There's two. I've got to use quotes there. Italian dishes in scotland that i've seen one is deep fried battered pizza and the other one is deep fried battered lasagna oh no oh you've had one the macaroni what? pies oh yeah that's yeah that yeah that's, that's true as well macaroni uh, pies. For, for an italian is shocking enough to see the macaroni cheese in a team is that's so, already now so the good thing is we also invented the the telephone in scotland and the television Oh. <laughs> so, and we improved Italian cuisine with the deep fryer. <laughs> so on, on that note, I, I had another question going back to sort of economics. We've had the last year, um, it's been a tough time in Europe. Energy, energy prices have gone through the roof. My, my parents and family still live in, in Scotland. Um, and they talk about the cost of living going up and up and up. And I've noticed that in Australia, but not to the extent that my parents talk about. Do you think as people, as middle-class people start to struggle with the cost of living, do they start to care less about, you know, these vegan arguments? Totally, yes. Um, the sympathy is gone. This, yeah, but in general about uh, plant-based, about uh, you can see that also there is a big talk in Europe now about uh, animal welfare. By the way, the, 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 the regulations are already incredibly strict, but still the European Commission is pushing to change the legislation to improve it even more. There is always room of improvement, but uh, they're uh, they pushing that even more. And I'm saying that because uh, if you read uh, you know, on Twitter, on the media, on the on magazines, uh, if you talk to people, uh, everyone is caring of animal welfare then when you have to spend a few cents more that's gone so that they, they don't bite it's it's really uh, evidently like that according to to data collected and uh, and that's also uh, why one of the reasons for which uh, the plant-based uh, um, meat substitutes are, are experiencing such a loss in uh, in revenues in sales because Really, in Europe and in some parts of Europe, like Germany, Italy, the the one the, the country is more more dependent on uh, on Russian gas, uh, energy prices and uh, raw material prices increased so much, and the inflation was such a problem that uh, many people uh, went back to 
to what to what uh, really makes sense uh, to be both or to be yeah. eaten. Is that but that argument? So when the money gets tight, it's back to the cage eggs and less about animal welfare, less about um, that vegan type activity or, or that vegan you know, approach. But it's probably true that you could say the same about the broader environmental uh, and sustainable arguments that if money's if money's tight and money's a concern, then the average consumer is so focused on the gen, you know just to live that they're not looking at products that are environmentally sustainable. They're just looking for the cheapest. Thing that they can get it depends you see uh, it depends how you deal with the environmental uh, transition uh, so if it's like, uh, like as it is in as it was in europe these last years i think uh, a niche uh, products uh, thing is only for rich but we were talking before uh, uh, valorizing the entire animals when you slaughter it that's uh, that's something in potentially making you save money. So my grandparents were not rich and they were uh, managing to, uh, for instance, to use all the animals, to, to cook every part, every organ of the animals, and that makes you save money. And that's uh, environmental uh, uh, protection. No, but anyway, it's circular economy. It's uh, reducing waste. So it's uh, things that uh, actually make you save money in protecting the environment or or not wasting your resources so it depends and, how you deal yeah, with that yeah. no fair. Yeah. And, and for that matter living living probably a more authentic natural way as well where you're you know you, you you're using the whole of the animal you're you know you're potentially uh you know growing some of your own produce andrew some, some of your own vegetables in the backyard you know it's all it's all ways that you can so, minimize so, so, your so, uh, footprint so, so matt is uh is what i can i'm a bit of a greenie myself andrew he's, keeps he's, calling me a bit of an environmentalist uh, He's got his little, uh, his farm. He grows his own crops, smokes his own crops, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I had another question to ask you. You don't, you don't need to answer this one because it's relatively new in the news the last day or two. There was some reports out about Ireland looking to cull, I think. Oh, China, the sheep population, yeah. The sheep population and the dairy cows. Yeah. In, 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 and I think the numbers were in the hundreds of thousands. What's your yeah, something like two hundred thousand? Yes, two hundred thousand uh, dairy. I think reduce the numbers uh, so that they can meet some carbon targets or something, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's the official reason. And uh, I mean, if you ask me, it's uh, absurd. It's crazy, actually. It's uh, it's uh, it's one of the things impressing me the most uh, in Europe right now because they're doing that in Ireland. I don't know if you've seen if you have Netherlands seen as well as in, in the Netherlands as yeah. well. You know, with the farmers' protest, they want to buy out three thousand farms uh, to 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 sh they want to shut them down to 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 meet their climate uh, targets. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's crazy because it's uh, useless and it create it can create more damages. Hmm. So they are focusing on on the wrong sector. Because uh, instead of uh, uh, cutting the emissions of transport, of the energy sectors, of the building sectors, uh, they are going to hit livestock, which is uh, not only producing food, good food, as we were saying, but also uh, can be helping in, tech, in tackling climate change. Because uh, uh, livestock and ag agriculture in general is the only human activity, not only producing carbon, but also uh, storing yeah. it so yep. you're going to cut a, a sector which can help you to reduce carbon 
and, and preserve biodiversity. Because if we are speaking of pastures, I mean, in Scotland, uh, you, you know that pretty well. Uh, animals are uh, preserving the biodiversity. They're, uh, in Italy, in the, in the internal parts of Italy or in Sardinia, in Sicily, the pastures are helping to prevent fires because they eat all these bushes which are getting on fire so so quickly so and creating more carbon so they it's it's crazy i don't know what's going on honestly but it's, it's, but it's uh, it seems to me like we've looked a little bit at the is it the farm to fork policies for 2030 the green diplomacy policies which which point towards because um, i wrote a controversial paper in 2021, Matt, mm -hmm. it was the it was the paper that we got the most complaints about at the time when Sri Lanka was moving to the um, organics or organic policy. Oh. It was a complete failure, and we we said it was, it was a complete failure and this is going to be a disaster. And we were told that we were completely wrong, and our logic was what was the logic? Flawed, flawed, flawed logic. You were told you were using, yeah. and I think we can all. Say safely say that was an absolute disaster for that <laughs> parliament, which uh, got mm. overturned. But so we're talking about Europe being what twenty percent organic by twenty thirty. Twenty five. Twenty five. Okay, so we've got an extra five percent on top. Uh, so twenty five percent. That's to on, make up for the loss in yield. Loss in yield. <laughs> but but, yeah. but twenty five percent of organic production. And I'm not anti-organic by any stretch of imagination, because we used to we used to supply the organic industry with pig shit from our farm. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is, the scientific evidence is that if you're producing food organically, the yields are lower, at least on crops. So mm. we could be seeing in 2030 and beyond an environment where Europe Europe still exports food products, especially to Africa you know, wheat from France into Algeria, we could see by 2030, 2035, you know, Europe being really struggling to, oh, yeah. to, to feed itself of its own stocks and will have to purchase from overseas, which we'll be a beneficiary of, most likely, in Australia. And that's a good thing. For, for Europe, you've got the money to mm. import. But you're going to see an issue where countries like Europe are, are going to be importing food from around the world at the expense of countries that can't necessarily afford it. I'm, I'm thinking those sort of South Africa, uh, you know, mid Africa, East Africa, those type of nations that have already got food. Insecurity. Insecurity. Yes, mm -hmm. it's, uh, yeah, you're hitting quite an important point uh, for a European. Uh, so mm. I, first of all, I recommend if you want, if you can to watch on YouTube, the nine paradoxes of the, of the farm to fork strategy, a video made by the European List of Voice. And this of the organic is one of the main one because as you have said, the, the crops are reducing. Mm. So we are speaking here of, uh, so in Europe, we don't have the space to run such a thing. And uh, if we succeed to increase like that, the organic farming production, it happens that uh, the food, uh, we have problems of food scarcity. Yeah. So it's, it's a really serious issue. And even if we have the money to import, what about the environment? So the farm to fork is the agri-food branch of the Green Deal, the European Green Deal. So we are speaking of reducing the emissions. So I reduce my production, which is a problem economically and socially. And to face the demand, to, 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 to meet the demand, sorry, I have to import from somewhere else. 
maybe Australia can be beneficial for you, but what about the climate? So I'm increasing the emissions to import goods maybe from far. It's a, it's a complete nonsense. So that's uh, the, the the sector is trying to uh, to let the commission think about that. They did. They don't care. They have a pretty, let me say, ideological approach again. They have their climate targets and they go for it. They don't want to talk to farmers. And, uh, and we have these crazy things. So you, we have the USDA, because they didn't uh, make a, a proper uh, uh, impact evaluation of, of these things in Brussels. So I have the USDA from the US making a report showing what would it, what it, would it mean in terms yeah, of emissions. I've, I've read that that's crazy. So from the US, they have to tell me that I'm doing some big mistakes. And uh, no, it's uh, it's then uh, the organic uh, uh, targets are probably the the best, uh, most immediate example of the nonsense of this strategy as it is, because we all agree with organic, with reducing the emissions, and so on and so forth. But not like that. It's not realistic. No. So you made it's a disaster. It is. And you, you made some really good points before around, I guess, this attacking of agriculture more broadly and, and trying to you know, get agriculture to become more um, aware of their emissions, right? But, but when you look globally, um, the, 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 the emissions globally that are coming, whether, whether it's carbon or whether it's methane or, um, or other greenhouse gas emissions, agriculture as a whole industry globally, I think it's about 16 or 17% of total emissions, right? Um, whereas things like transport, energy are up, you know, if you can, them two combine just alone, and that includes air flights that you mentioned about your, your friend going from, from Milan to Paris weekly, um, that, that's like 73% of, of, of global emissions are through transport or energy, you know, heating of buildings, uh, other energy, you know, electricity, whatnot. Uh, are they? If you're really going to be an environmentalist in your heart, rather than going down this vegan agenda, what what are the things should people what should people be tackling first and foremost? Um, you know, to try and get that down. Condoms. Less children. <laughs> Less people. You reckon? <laughs> no, from from, well, from well, my perspective, as a as a as someone that's been in this uh, environmental journalist space for a long time, like. What are the things we should really be focusing on as a as a planet to try and get um, our emissions in order globally? The, 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 your lifestyle on the whole, so not only food, uh, not only this, not only that, but uh, small changes uh, in, uh, in in general. So uh, about transports for sure, uh, because uh, you were speaking about the flights Milan to Paris. We we calculated that uh, a return flight Rome Brussels which is not such a big deal, particularly for an Australian, is uh, producing a CO2 emissions per passenger, which are higher than uh, the meat consumption in one year of an Italian, yep. Yep. when yep. it's a balanced uh, meat consumption, so like the Mediterranean diet. Uh, so the transport, what you wear, how you, you spend your free time, uh, how you behave at home uh, with, your, with your devices, uh what kind of like everything it's it's a it's a very complex uh topic so you cannot uh, fall into the illusion into the trap of uh, saving the world only uh giving up a single product or or uh, or making a single choice it can so, be useful small steps but yeah, you're, so, so you're saying you're saying, you're saying um, you're saying that I could I could be in my house uh, you know in winter 
wearing a t-shirt and shorts and having the the heating hiked up to uh, 30 degrees so, so I'm comfortable and I can go and fly, you know, uh, thousands of kilometres to have a holiday. Um, I can wear synthetic clothes, but I can stop eating beef and I'm doing a good thing for the environment. Unfortunately, it's not working like that. I mean, it, it, it would be much easier, but uh, but unfortunately, it's not. And also the fact of the, of the kids, there are many people promoting this uh, stopping having kids. I don't know if it's really, I mean, it's, it's another very, I have an, uh, a, a, a point of view which is uh, well, different my, from well, most my, of environmental. My mother has a view on that. After what? Wait, she, yeah. After she a said, second she child, said, she, she decided she to kids. No, she said, after, your, after my sister, we should have stopped and never had you. <laughs> that's another, but that was, another, I don't know if that was anything to do with the climate. It was, yeah. it was, it was something no, else. It doesn't sound like that. No, but I mean, uh, the, the, again, uh, the societies, once they get wealthy and uh, and emancipated, uh, also the women are tending to decrease the population. Look at China. So I don't know if it's, uh, again, if it's something we need to, to promote that much. Surely Africa is booming this next century. But the rest of the world is, uh, will be soon facing the opposite problem. So an aging population with all the troubles that uh, this is creating. So I want I want to use I want to use a well-known ancient Italian expression. Do, do, what? Why are you laughing, Matt? Oh, I'm wondering <laughs> if you're going to do it. In, in, are you going to do deliver the expression uh, in Italian or in, with in, uh... in English? Because okay. Um, do you think? At the moment, Europe is like Nero playing the fiddle. That's Europe, sorry. It's like yeah. Nero playing the playing the fiddle while Rome burns. Oh, well. Uh, sometimes it seems like yes, because uh, yeah, because we we're focusing on issues which are not really helping us to helping us to. Uh, to stop this fire, let's say. <laughs> but, but it's, so, so you mentioned small steps, yeah? So we, we can each do our individual small bit. You know, I can go and eat some lamb hearts, stuff with mushrooms. Mm -hmm. But agriculture still has a place to play as well. So like from, from a point of view of, say, for instance, and this is where you get this sort of paradox as well between environmentalism and animal welfare. The best way to reduce the CO2 equivalents of an animal in its life cycle is to make it more productive, produce more meat per beast in a shorter period of time. So one of those ways of doing it is potentially feedlotting. Yeah, intensive, intensive farming. In, intensive agriculture. So, so Matt and I were intensive pig producers and, and it still amazes me how much meat you can produce in such a short period of time with a right diet. Uh, we work with some chicken chicken producers, and it's the same. Like small changes to their diet can produce a ten percent increase in meat quite easily. But those same industries, which look, let's be honest, an intensive agricultural facility is not an attractive place to work. We had one. Like we walking around a pig shit is not the nicest environment but it is probably it's good, for, it's good for the garden though andrew it's good for the garden but this this is the thing like that that intensive agriculture can produce meat it's it's feed conversion ratio is so much higher but at the same time that's good for the environment technically but you've got the same people 
in many cases who are saying we need to end intensive agriculture. Intensive farming, yeah. So, so, yeah, so you got this sort of hitting a, yeah, yeah, a very important point because I am uh, among the supporters I'm, I have in this last period with this book. I have uh, many meat eaters who are anyway not accepting the message of this book because it's inside of the so-called uh, uh, sustainable intensification. So I'm advocating completely the fact that uh, a proper intensification of the production can be good for the environment because it's more efficient, for the uh, society because you get uh, affordable food for more people, yeah. for the animals because uh, when you invest uh, as the major companies are doing in uh, in uh, in this sustainable intensification, the animal welfare is increasing because you're investing on infrastructures and tools and structures. Sorry, that are improving animal welfare. But it's something really difficult as a message to 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 be spread because uh, people have also when uh, not vegans, not uh, or animal uh, sorry meat lovers. Um, they have this bucolic view of zootechnics and uh, and they refuse straight away the fact that uh, intensive farming can be good and is good. But again, w depends on which intensive farming, because if we are speaking of, uh, uh, you know, many animal rights uh, activists are using in this period in Italy, um, the images of this big palace in China with uh, you know yeah. this 26th yeah. floor yeah. building. Well, that's pretty extreme, I admit that. But uh, again, when you speak about intensive farming in Europe, at least in Italy and in Europe, it doesn't exist anything like that. Uh, on average, uh, uh, a farm in Italy, if we're speaking of pigs, has a bit more than 300 animals. That's mm. intensive farming for us. So what are we talking about? Uh, we, we didn't get that those, those figures and, the, and that level. So uh, intensive farming means uh, in a stable with animal confined, controlled, uh, the, the farmer taking care of them, and also yeah, carefully, them. carefully yeah. cared for. I quite like the phrase when I, I was in Nepal a couple of years ago, and the phrase that you used, they didn't use the word intensive agriculture. And I found this a really quite an interesting phrase. They used the word scientific agriculture. For in, in, when they're referring to like a pig farm or a chicken farm, they, they said farming is farming, and the rest is scientific farming. I quite yeah. like that phrase. I think that's a, because they're because they're measuring more, they're keeping track more, more and closely, and it's and it's, yeah. and it's, it's a way of prescri prescri prescriptive uh, farming. Yeah, prescriptive precision farming, scientific confined, protected farming. It's a question of phrasing. Uh, because in fact you cannot say anymore uh, or write anymore words like industrial, intensive. Uh, everybody's against that, even if uh, behind the, 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 the it's very different. So yeah, it, it's it's funny that you you made mention of the the big uh, the big pork hotels. I think they call them in China, but I mean in the system and certainly the the, the more modern of the uh, intensive pig farms here in Australia and in parts of the world now, and even some of the dairy farms also that have got a lot of manure being produced, they're capturing the manure in a biodigester or in a, in a methane capturing system. And then those often those farms are absolutely neutral in terms of their emissions. In fact, some of them are able to power other, uh, you know, dwellings outside of the farm 
as well. So they're, they're effectively an absolutely carbon neutral or sometimes carbon um, capturing. It's not cheap, uh, though. Well, it's not cheap. Well, and in Europe, it's even more important now, uh, speaking of uh, energy prices. I mean, the fact that Italy and Germany, thanks to livestock, became uh, the, the third and the fourth uh, biogas and biomethane producers in the world after US and China is very important. So and it's again coming to the fact that you cannot be an environmentalist if you're against against livestock. I mean, you get biofuel, you get biomethane, biogas, you reduce the emissions. In the circular economy, from a single cattle, from a single cow, you get thousands of products because you don't throw away anything. So uh, it's 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 profitable. Uh, it's it's climate friendly. It's everything, but uh, you're killing an animal. And in our uh, fairy tale world, Western world, we think that that's wrong, and it's the most natural thing of of the world. So yeah. So the live, you've got the organization, the Livestock Voice. You mentioned that a few times. And it's got the website, meetthefacts.eu. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about that. What's the problem? .eu, yeah. .eu, dot .eu. meetthefacts.eu. It sounded like you said .au for a second there. So. Could have been your accent, Andrew. Could have been my accent. Yeah. So what, what's that all about? It's, uh, it's, it's a project uh, in which I've been involved uh, last year. Uh, and contribute and coordinating it. So I'm not the only one. There are many people involved, many professionals. Um, and it's, uh, again, like the one in Italy called uh, uh, Carni Sostenibili, so the Sustainable Meat Project, is a communication project. It's trying to counterbalance uh, the uh, disinformation or misinformation uh, circulating on livestock. So there are 14 members involved. Uh, so the main... Uh, uh, organizations of producers from the meat sector, dairy, aquaculture, leather, fur, uh, genetics, animal health. Uh, there is a, there is all the livestock sector basically involved in trying to not to make greenwashing, not to say that uh, the, the livestock is not impacting, but in uh, again letting the public and the decision makers in the Brussels bubble uh, understand that uh, there is a, it's really called like that also in Brussels. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, do, I laugh because our, our uh, national capital, Canberra, is called the Canberra bubble also. So it must okay. be anywhere that has politicians uh, is the bubble. Mm -hmm. So to let them understand uh, the, the bubble and the public, the general public, that uh, livestock sector, yes, is impacting, but is uh, a lot helpful in. Uh, uh, again, reducing uh, uh, climate um, greenhouse gases emission and uh, and stuff like that. So it's uh, it's a communication problem uh, pro project. Sorry, not uh, uh, no politics involved. Of course, it's difficult because uh, you're dealing with political stuff somehow. But we it's it's not uh, something political. No parties involved. Just communicating about livestock. So and uh, organizing initiatives like. Uh, uh, press uh, press trips, uh, taking journalists or some politicians. We took uh, Franz Timmers, Timmermans uh, to visit a farm. Franz Timmermans is the vice president of the European Commission, very much uh, engaged in the farm to force strategy. So to, to see literally on the field how farms are working, uh, taking journalists to see 
out from their offices and the, and their desks to see how farmers are are living and working. Uh, so it's it's an important thing because uh, like we were saying before, uh, they are all very much detached from uh, from agriculture and from uh, farms, and we need either to take them there physically or to explain them what's going on uh, through uh, videos, articles, infographics, FAQs, anything which can be helpful in understanding how livestock sector is uh, uh, is working. The website is meetdefects.eu for the time being. Meetdefects is just a campaign of the European List of Voice, but uh, for the time being, that's the official website. Creates maybe some confusion, but yes, that's the, the one. So... Is it is it getting much cut through? Is it getting making an impact? It's very much at the beginning. Everything so the the project has been uh, launched uh, three years ago. Uh, I've been involved uh, a bit more than one year ago. So it's uh, we call it uh, a toddler for the time being. So it's uh, it's uh, it's very much at the beginning. Uh, we're also trying to settle some uh, so-called national platforms because in Europe things are changing pretty much. From nation to nations, culturally, mm. language of course is different from country to country, mostly. So it's uh, it's at the beginning, but we can see already how much uh, is uh, um, checked in the Brussels bubble. So our articles are read. Uh, maybe the, the the permanence of the website is on average two minutes, even more, which yeah. is uh, which means that people are really reading what we are publishing. And uh, the the curiosity from uh, from all over Europe and around the world. I was speaking about this project in Washington, uh, D.C. in the U.S. last uh, at the beginning of uh, of May, uh, and I, and we got uh, requests from Australia. In Australia, there is the Global Meat Alliance. You know that better than myself, I guess. So it's uh, it's uh, raising a lot of attention because, as you were saying, Europe is uh, is a particular place. There is a lot of know-how, but often it stays on its own. So the fact that finally also Europe wants to speak out uh, is uh, is apparently creating a lot of attention also outside of Europe. So I, I really believe in this project because I see that as a, a potentially very impactful um, initiative, and uh, and I hope it can it can develop properly because. Uh, uh, the the dream is that uh, then it can become it can become a, a a global network because I think the the necessity to speak properly about uh, livestock about meat like you guys are just, doing it's, um, it's just to get some important. objective facts out there because because yeah. I look at it from a point of view yeah like I, I spend a lot of time with people who aren't in agriculture and you're the same Matt as mm. well and. I think about how easy it would be to misinform them about how bad agriculture is. If you're on yeah. the opposite side, it would be so easy, but it's really hard. I'm not saying it's hard, but it requires a bit more to talk about the good things about agriculture. Like it, it, I'm just, no, that sounds really bad if I've said that, but, but, it just it is easy for somebody with you know whether it's beyond meat or whatever to create this narrative that agriculture is all bad because we're so disconnected from it like on average the average person doesn't ever go on a farm in their life i'd imagine 
especially in Europe and, and in Australia as well. Like Australia is one of the most urbanized countries in the world. It's probably more urban than Europe. Yeah, yeah. So it does come down to that, you know, the messaging and how you can combat the billions of dollars that are available from, you know, those, those big listed enterprises, but also like in our case in Australia, we've got an organization called Animals Australia. Animals Australia is a lobby group, which uh, I guess is a lobby group, is it Matt? Would you call that? Mm. Animal welfare organization, lobbyist, whichever, a bit like, a bit like activists, PETA, activists, yeah. Like PETA, but mm. they, part of their focus is on reducing meat consumption. But in years gone by, they've received $20 million in funding. You know, I think 14 million last year. Oh, donations, I guess. Donations. Not fund, yeah, it's not, it's not government funded, but it's donations from the public. Funding from someone. Mm. But that's more than equivalent organizations such as yourself in Australia would get. Like, we, we, it's about having a war chest, and it's very hard to combat that. Yeah, it takes, uh, takes uh, a lot of effort uh, and, uh, and sometimes I'm afraid because this sector, the livestock sector made also the mistake not to communicate at all mm. in the last decades and somebody else has done it. And, uh, and yes, the budgets are incredibly different. I mean, if I speak about the, if I think about the, the budget of the European livestock voice and I see, because in Europe you can see that as well on the so-called uh, transparency register of the European Commission, you see the budget of these the animal rights uh, activism NGOs, it's scary. There are some of them with the hundreds of millions of euros uh, budgets or, uh, uh, I mean, these are the amounts uh, and you cannot compete with that. Absolutely not. Uh, you, you don't need necessarily big budgets to, go, to do effective, uh, to produce effective videos or, or write something interesting, but, but it helps. of course... <laughs> It helps. It helps, uh, particularly when you want to promote uh, on the social media. It's everything a pay-per-view now, so you can reach more people. Um, you know, it, it makes the difference. That plus uh, uh, the, the the fact that it's a much easier message to spread nowadays. Sometimes I envy them because I mean, my God, how, how easy is their life? Uh, but uh, and I, I guess that and we, we mentioned about bubbles before, yeah. And I'm not, I don't know enough about your organization, but I'm thinking about similar sort of things around the world is we can also get into a bubble as well. And that we, like at the moment. You mean within agriculture, to, just talking about people within agriculture, talking like, to other people within agriculture. Like we're talking to you mm. about agriculture and other people being in a bubble. But let's be honest, the majority of people listening to this podcast will be in agriculture, agribusiness or agricultural policy. Mm. And, and that's that's fine because the whole point is to for people who listen to us to understand what you guys are doing in Europe and maybe some of the organizations that are similar in Australia can replicate some of that or they can get in contact you. Oh, partnership. Oh, no, when, when, Andrea, when Andrea was mentioning about his, the website, the Meet the Facts website, so there's a similar website here that MLA, that's Meat and Livestock Australia, so that's like the organization for red meat in Australia. Um, they have a, a website called Red Meat Green Facts, which is a similar type idea to what you're doing with yours, I think, to to demonstrate the you know the, the ways in which that um, red meat sector is actually an environmentally sound and, 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 and a valid uh, industry from that perspective. So that's another one you might, when you're thinking of 
branching out to get these global networks all talking the same language around the benefits of red meat um, and the environmental um, aspects that are positive. Uh, that's another one you might want to consider, red, red meat, uh, green facts. You know, it's important to know about these, uh, these, uh, these initiatives because I think it's the first step. As I was saying, the sector didn't really communicate. So the first step, and we are still in the first step, we need to start communicating and then we need to get in touch to replicate, to, to share experiences. Then if you ask me, for sure, it will be important to get out of our bubbles, our echo chambers. It's normal that somebody caring of agriculture is listening to this post podcast instead of somebody uh, not not dealing with agriculture. But uh, my challenge, oh, and I think my, it, my, it's my, the challenge. My, my auntie Julie will be listening to it. She's not in agriculture. So so that's that's Matt's best friend, Auntie Julie. Yeah, exactly. The, the next step is to get the, the general public. That's uh, something we're already focusing on in Europe in setting these uh, uh, national platforms because uh, it's important to speak of politicians. It's, it's important to speak of the operators of the sector and so on. But personally, and it will be one of the next steps uh, will be to reach the general public. That's really challenging because to get the attention of people nowadays is not banal. But uh, if we manage to make, uh, uh, also to make uh, agriculture cool again, uh, or, you know, I like all these uh, young farmers, mostly in France or in the UK, less in other countries in Europe, who are just showing on, on Twitter, on TikTok, uh, on Instagram, uh, what they're doing. Uh, that's really a first step towards what we're talking about, because then you reach possibly other young people not inside of this sector, and you and it's the it's it's how it's starting from my point of view, a uh, uh, really breakthrough. And uh, but it takes uh, it takes a bit more time before time, getting there. Time and money, that's the hard bit. Yeah, but we we can get there. And the, but again, the first step is to get in touch, and that's why I'm really glad and. Uh, and I thank you for having me here today because it's the it's very important for the time being. So, other than for this, most of our listeners are in Australia. Funnily enough, Australia, Europe, and North America is our biggest listenership. Uh, so, what messages would you have for the listeners? Like, just as a one-off finishing message, apart from buy my book, mm, buy the book, uh, get onto the website, <laughs> have a look at the YouTube Nine Paradoxes of the Farm to Fork Strategy. But what, what would you say is the, the big message for, for producers, for, for the livestock producers in Australia? It's to communicate, to communicate what, uh, what they're doing. Uh, I know it's not uh, your job, it's not their job, uh, but uh, so a farmer is waking up early in the morning, taking care of uh, his or her animals and crops. So, but uh, in the limits of possible, communicate, say what you're doing, involve people, open the doors of your farms, uh, involve some uh, professionals, engage into programs and podcasts uh, as much as possible, like, like yours here. Do something to say what you're doing, because if not, somebody else is doing that for you, namely NGOs and, and stuff, and, uh, and they're creating damages. Uh, it's important that the public, the the... the, the the general public knows uh, what's uh, what's going on in farms, and and if we don't say that, if you don't say that, 
uh, again, somebody else will do that. And, and it, it was like that uh, long enough. Uh, and, and we see the results. So before it's too late, uh, <laughs> go for it. Go for Speak. It. Speak. <laughs> Speak up. What's, Speak what, up. What, what, what did they say in a wedding, Matt? When, Sorry, what, what do they say in a wedding, Matt? But, 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 uh, uh, speak but, now, forever hold your peace. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, uh, there's lots of things that get said in a wedding. I was going to say "viva la sposi," but that's a different, different phrase. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah. we've actually been on for quite a bit of time now. Yep, it's really interesting. I think it's an interesting topic. And so now we're going to do it all, but in Italian. Yep, so now we're going to do another hour and, a, hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, that would be a touch uh, easier for me. Uh, <laughs> on top, you have probably the two most difficult accents for a, for a not English native speaker uh, in the world. Australian and Scottish are both pretty <laughs> challenges. You've, well, you've done an excellent, you've done an excellent job. I don't think it'll be no, long. Like, I don't think it'll be long before you're out in Australia anyway, doing some presentations. Uh, oh, I've never been there. I really hope I can get the opportunity. I think I think I can I can imagine you'll get invited at some point. Uh, I think your message will be very popular with a lot of uh, livestock agriculture in Australia. Absolutely. Because I, 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 I hope I, so, I think, and I hope uh, we can stay in touch in any case. So, because agriculture in Australia is facing much the same challenges that it is in Europe, and I think probably the same in the US, Canada, and. I suppose I should say UK because it's not part of Europe anymore. Mm -hmm. So there you go. All right. Well, it's been good. It's been a, a good podcast, very in informative, and um, lots of people to go away and investigate and look at in terms of the book and the website and the YouTube channel you mentioned as well. So. And we'll put some links on to the bottom of the bio thing for the podcast. And uh, yeah, I recommend, I, I, I say I recommend your book. I haven't actually read it yet because it's on the way, but I'll recommend it off the back of this conversation that the book will be good and uh and yeah thanks for thanks for coming on Take thank, time you. Out. Fantastic. thank you very Hopefully, much for uh, having me thank you for your work and uh, and uh, really it was really a pleasure to talk to you Hopefully, um, Italy's more success in the next World Cup and um, we'll see you when you've got nothing on, Andrea Yes, I hope so <laughs> Thank you Bye